Hello everyone and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. This week, we're going to be continuing our study of finding Jesus in the Old Testament, but this week is also Easter service. So we're going to take a look as we hear from Pastor Chris about the Passion Week. Now with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. He is risen. He has risen. So if you've been with us, you know, where are we in the Bible? What are we going through and what's our purpose? Just on a regular Sunday morning. Jesus in the Old Testament. And we're looking for Jesus under every nook and under every cranny. And so this week and today, Easter Sunday, marks the end of Holy Week or Passion Week. It starts when he enters in Jerusalem and it finishes when he resurrects from the dead. So this morning in in theme with what we've been going through in the Bible, we're going to look at Passion Week or Holy Week, but from the Old Testament. How God hundreds and even a thousand years before this specific week happened, gives us every single detail so that when it happens, we could know Jesus is Lord. And so with that, let's look at the very first act of this holy week. And it starts in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter nine. Now, you know we've been in this passage quite a bit in the last couple of weeks, so we're going to touch on it, and we are going to move forward. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and following is the beginning of Passion Week or Holy Week. And what is the beginning? What does Jesus do? He enters into Jerusalem. Does he walk? Is he flying? Is he running? How? What's his transportation like? He's on a donkey, which is super duper unique. And so Zechariah chapter nine and verse nine, 550 years before Jesus would make his triumphal entry, God the Father through God the Holy Spirit writes down the beginning. And so it starts off, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And so quickly, we're going to look at three things about his entry into the, into Jerusalem and essentially into inheritance of his kingdom. So we're going to look at his position. What is Jesus in verse nine? What is his title or his position? So we're going to look at his position as king. We're going to look at his practice, what he does as king, and then his posture, how this king acts. And so verse nine, again, it says, rejoice greatly. By the way, that's a command. God is commanding to rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, another command, O daughter of Jerusalem. And why? Why are they called to rejoice? Because their king is coming. 
Now, Israel had always wanted their king to come. They were in, in expectance of their king or their Messiah because he was going to do something very, very specific. Anybody know what their king was supposed to do for Israel? Free them. Supposed to take Rome and get them off their backs. Israel was to be the mega capital and the mega country, the superpower of the world. And all the nations are to flock to Jerusalem, to Israel in submission. If you've ever heard the term Zionists, you hear like radical Islamists, they speak of the Jews as Zionists. And that idea that Israel will be the world dominating power. Other people and other religions don't like that idea. But God says, look in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of what? Zion. And then he says, Shout in triumph, O daughter of what? So Jerusalem and Zion are the same thing. Only today in Jerusalem, there's no peace. There's false religion in Jerusalem. The city is divided into quarters. The Muslims are over there. The Christians are over there. The Jews, they have their corner over there. There's factions and there's fighting and there's terrorism. There's absolutely no peace. But there will come a day when the king of kings comes into Jerusalem where he will elevate Jerusalem to the epicenter of the world and the entire world will pay homage to the king. So here God, before it happens, is saying rejoice because Zion is coming or this kingdom age where peace on earth takes place is on its way. Your king, he is coming. And so we see Jesus riding as king and then we see his practice. He is just and endowed with salvation. The Hebrew word just means just in judgment. So in the Supreme Court, what are they called? Who said that? Justices. Supreme Court justices. Now, Jesus is a justice in the sense that he is judge. And because he is judge, therefore his judgments are righteous or just or true. So this king coming into Jerusalem is, number one, going to be the judge. In Israel, who was the judge of people, typically? When you go back to Israel's history, who judged the people? The judges. Remember the book of Judges? There was a guy named Samson. He was a judge. And they had the power over life and death. But Israel, they didn't like that. What did they want to do? They wanted to be like all the other nations and have what? A king. We want a king like everyone else. We don't want to be ruled by God who enforces God's law through judges. We want kings. And so they elevated a guy. He was a model for head and shoulders named Saul, right? He was dark, maybe, but he was definitely tall and he was handsome. He was 6'5", smiled like the sunrise, and everybody loved him. So everybody cast their vote for Saul, and he became the very first king of Israel. With that, the judges were pushed off to the side and the power of life and death went into the authority of the king. That's why during the time of Solomon, remember he's judging people and there was a two women, they're like, she stole my baby and she stole my baby. And and Solomon says, cut the baby in half and each of you can take half of it. And problem solved. The point is the king is now judge over life and over death. 
So Jesus is judge. And we see that in scripture. Second Timothy chapter four and verse one. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a Sunday. He weeps over Jerusalem. He goes and he cleanses the temple on Monday. And then on Tuesday and Wednesday, he's teaching. And he's teaching about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's teaching about the end times. He's teaching about his second coming. And then Jesus teaches about how he will judge the living and the dead. So you can see that in Matthew chapter 25 for yourself. So Zechariah says he is king, he is judge, and what else does he offer? What other practice does he bring? He is just and endowed with what? Salvation is right, should be right there, right up on the screen. He is endowed with salvation. The Hebrew word endowed means to save now. And the idea is this King Jesus offers immediate salvation. What does salvation mean? Bless you. Salvation means to be saved. The question then becomes, what are you saved from? Sin and death. The reality, though, is ultimately you're saved from God's judgment. It's God's judgment who ultimately judges your sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin equals death. Now, this is what the Bible says, that all of us, not just those people or these people or the people that we think are crazy or sinful, all of us has fallen short of God's standard. And so we work a life of sin. We're working and we're laboring 60, 100, 120 hours a week, serving sin. We were uh, having sex outside of marriage. We're doing drugs. We're doing all kinds of things, just living it up. You know, uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so we're, we're working for sin. And the paycheck at the end of our lives, the wages, the direct deposit you get into your account is eternal death. Your entire life of sin has been brought down to rubble. And then now you stand before Christ on the day of judgment, having to give an account. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ came to save you from your own sin and ultimately death. Christ came for you. He came to judge the living and the dead and to save his people from their sin. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That was his purpose. And what was the king's posture going back to Zechariah 9, 9? He is just and endowed with salvation. What is his posture like? Humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a donkey. You've heard that saying, get off your high what? 
horse. That's what kings rode because they were pompous. They were proud. They were arrogant. They were powerful. They were in control. They had the highest of horses. So everybody looks up to them. Jesus rode in on a young donkey, which means it's stunted. It's a, the runt of the litter. So people are looking eye level. Jesus came in as a humble king. Philippians 2, do you know what the ultimate humility of Christ was? The cross. Philippians 2 says, Christ humbled himself. He was God, but he did not think it scandalous to become like a slave and ultimately die in humility at the cross. Christ was so humble and his humility offered to us there, offered to us his salvation. So Jesus comes in to Jerusalem on the donkey to kick off Passion Week. And so we see that happen 550 years later in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 9. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go in to the village opposite you immediately you will find a donkey tied there, a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you anything, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the robe, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road, and the crowds going ahead of him. And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the word Hosanna means to save now. So we have Passion Week, Holy Week, well underway. Jesus cleanses the temple because what did they turn his father's house into? A den of thieves. It was to be a house of prayer. It was a, to be a place where man and God were to fellowship with the Lord, but they, they were charlatans. And they use the ministry for their own personal gain. So Christ cleanses the temple. He judges Jerusalem. He goes to a fig tree and he pronounces or he casts judgment on it. And what happens to that fig tree? It withers. The only miracle Jesus ever did where he takes life. Did you know that? And it was in judgment of Israel. Every other miracle Jesus ever did was life-giving, healing, raising, feeding, all of these life-giving. He's now judging Israel, and the fig tree withers. Wednesday, he goes, and he, he gives the, the Olivet Discourse, and he's teaching on the end times. And then we go to Thursday, which is the day of preparation before Passover, they go into an upper room. It's Jesus and his 12 disciples, and they begin to have dinner. It's called the Sadar. And they're the Sadar. It's the Passover dinner because Jesus is the Passover lamb. And he teaches them some very unique things. And it's so unique because all of these things happen in the Old Testament. 
He teaches one that he's going to be betrayed by a friend. He then teaches when he's arrested because of this betrayal, all of his boys, his disciples are all going to leave him. And then he teaches that he will be betrayed by the chief priests and he will be tried before the Gentiles, the Romans, and they will crucify him. But guys, don't worry. On the third day, I will rise again. So he tells them his betrayal. He tells them after his betrayal, how his disciples are going to flee from him. He then tells them how he's going to be before the Jews and the Romans in trial, be crucified, and then rise again from the dead. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn in the Old Testament to Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9. Psalm, did I put 61 up there? Psalm 41, sorry. Psalm 41 and verse 9. Bless you. And it says this, bless you. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, this is fascinating. This was written 1000 BC by a man named King David. Psalm 41 and verse 9. King David wrote this about his friend, um, not Absalom, Ahithophel. There we go. His friend Ahithophel. His friend was a counselor and one of his close confidants to David. Ahithophel betrays David to overthrow David's kingdom. He's trying to rip David's kingdom right from underneath his feet. Now the context of Jesus Christ. They're in the upper room. And Jesus is talking. And I can just imagine uh, uh, Judas. He's there. He's hungry. It's been a long day. He sees that little hummus bowl. He grabs a piece of bread and he just goes right in. And then he hears those words. The one who dips their hand in the bowl with me, he's the one that will betray me. And I can just see there, caught bread-handed, you know, just right there, hummus in hand. And he hears Jesus say, you're the one who's going to betray me. Exactly like David to overthrow his kingdom and undermine his king. Here Judas is to overthrow his king and undermine his kingdom in the exact same way. Well, Judas knew exactly what was happening. So at that point, Judas leaves and he goes and does what he knew he was going to do, sell them out. And so we see in Zechariah, Chapter 11, verse 12 and 13. Zechariah, chapter 12. I'm sorry, verse chapter 11, verse 12 and verse 13. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Now, Zechariah is writing this prophecy 550 years before it happens, and he's actually writing instead of Judas. The I here is actually Judas. When he says, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. This is Judas, and who is he speaking to? Who, 
to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. So the they are the religious leaders of Jesus' time and the ones Zechariah is quoting, you know, half a millennia before it happens is Judas himself. And then verse 13, God goes into uh, first person and he actually speaks. And listen to the Lord's commentary on this. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So they took 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now flip over to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1. The upper room happens on Thursday evening. Now this is Friday morning. Matthew 27 and verse 1. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. Fascinating because Ahithophel in Psalm 41, when he betrayed David, he went and he hung himself. And his stomach split open and all his entrails fell out. In Acts chapter 1 verse 15, We see Judas, he goes and he hangs himself and his stomach splits open and all his entrails fall out, just like the betrayer Ahithophel in the Old Testament. So now the chief priests have this money. And then verse six, the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together with the money bought with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. Fascinating. They saw their king and they had a price tag of a common slave, 30 pieces of silver. So Jesus in the upper room said he would be betrayed. And then what would happen when he was arrested? What would the disciples do? They would scatter, right? They would not stick around. And that's exactly what happened. And this was to fulfill the writing by Zechariah the prophet in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hands against these little ones. So Jesus says in the upper room, you guys are all, he's gonna betray me and the rest of you are gonna leave me. And what does Peter do in his bravado? 
He stands up and he says, all of these guys, him, 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 all of them are going to betray you, not me, Lord. And Jesus says, for Pete's sake, sit down. (laughs) And he tells them, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three different times. Well, now let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 and verse 47. Now we have left the upper room and Jesus is now going into the garden of Gethsemane. And it's there where he's going to sweat great drops of blood and where he's going to cry out to God the Father. Here's what's really fascinating is as Jesus is moving from the upper room and into the garden, he's passing a little creek, this little river that runs through. It's called the Brook Kidron. Now, the Brook Kidron has a specific relevance because it starts at the Temple Mount. And this little creek runs from the Temple Mount and it runs down the side of the hill, down the Mount of Olives and then through. Now, on Thursday evening, And going on into Friday, it's the preparation of Passover. So what's happening at the Temple Mount during this time? The Passover lambs are being slaughtered. The blood is being shed. And this is now funneling into the Brook Kidron. The Brook Kidron funnels down. And now Jesus and his disciples have to cross this in order to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Imagine the Lamb of God sent to the world to take away its sin. And here he is literally crossing a creek of blood, of lamb's blood, the Passover lamb. And so here they are and they're crossing. And this is the time when Jesus gets arrested. Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he was betraying him and gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, and that is in the perfect tense, which means he continued to kiss him over and over. He is the one seize him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those, nicknamed Peter, who were with Jesus, reached out, drew his sword, and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. That slave's name was Malchus. The guy wielding the sword was Peter. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, for Pete's sake, verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? So each legion, there's 6,000 angels. So So that's a lot of angels we're talking here. One angel in the book of Kings killed 180,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So you can imagine multiple legions of angels will do some serious damage. And so Jesus is looking at Peter and saying, just kick back, relax. Verse 15, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? And at that time, Jesus said to the crowd, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. 
But all this had to be taken. All this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures and the prophets. And then what's the last part of that verse say? Then all his disciples left him. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So Jesus is arrested and then he's tried before the Jewish leaders in two trials. And then he's sent before the Romans under the third and final trial under the governor. And what's his name? Pontius Pilate. Now with Jesus' trial, the Old Testament speaks about that. And it says that he doesn't defend himself. Now think of Johnny Cochran, one of the best defense attorneys in the world. Now you have Jesus Christ, which is far greater. In fact, the Bible says that he is our defense attorney defending our salvation before God the Father from Satan. He is our defense advocate. Why doesn't he open his mouth? Why doesn't he defend himself? He can outwit the governors. He can outwit the religious leaders like he's done for the last three and a half years. He can reason his case better than anybody. And if he really wanted to, he can break out by calling angels. Why doesn't he do it? It's not the plan, man. It's just not the plan. The plan was Jesus was to be tried and he's not going to defend himself. And then Jesus is to be mocked and ridiculed and put to death. And the Old Testament says just that. And Isaiah chapter 53 and verse seven. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. When you go back to Matthew chapter 27, I'm sorry, I do this all the time. Matthew 26 and verse 57, you see this silence before the religious leaders of Jerusalem of Israel. Verse 57, Matthew 26. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. This was the first trial. It was very, very, very early Friday morning. It was a mock trial. It was actually in violation of their own law. So this was a fake and false trial, but they don't care. Verse 58, but Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? And what does verse 63 say? But Jesus, what? Kept silent. Now go to John chapter 19. They didn't get what they wanted out of Jesus. So they now have to send him to the Romans because under Caesar Augustus, they lost their ability to execute people. So John 19, they need the Romans to kill Jesus. John 19, verse one. Then Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. 
And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. And Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So Pilate was a superstitious man. He believed in not one God, not two gods, but literally all the gods. He literally believed in any deity because he was so scared that he would be found guilty and be tried. And so he, when he heard this, he became terrified because he's superstitious. Not only that, but his wife comes up to him and says, hey, I had a dream about this guy, Jesus. Don't harm him. And so now Pilate's in the ringer. What do I do? If he is who who he says he is, I'm in deep trouble. So now Pilate is trying to get information from Jesus. Is he this king? Is he a God? Am I going, am I in trouble? He's really freaking out. So therefore, uh, verse eight, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And as a result of this, Pilate Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And this is where now he's in big trouble. You know the seventh inning stretch. One, two, three strikes, you're out in the old ball game, right? Pontius Pilate is already on two strikes. The first strike, he went into the Jews' temple with all their standards, with their Roman eagles and all that stuff, and the Jews said, you just violated the second commandment. Don't have any any graven image in this temple, and they had a revolt. News gets back to Rome, and Caesar says, all right, Pilate, strike one. Number two, Jerusalem has major famines, major problems with not getting enough rain. So Pilate's like, I want to get on their good side. Let me make amends. So I'll build them an aqueduct from Caesarea and we'll bring it all the way in. But Rome's not going to fund this. So where do I get the money from? Hmm. Let's go to the temple and let's raid all the money. Let's take all their money and we'll build them the aqueduct and they'll love us for it. Well, he did that. They revolted, strike two, Pontius. And now the Jews have him on strike three. If you say there's another king, then you're no friend of Caesar, Pilate. 
if we go tell Caesar, you're going to release a king who makes himself out to be Lord greater than Caesar, well, you're going to be crucified too, Pilate. And so Pilate is in a nasty situation, and he ultimately says, I wash my hands with this. Go do whatever you want to do. So the Bible says he will stand before his accusers, and he's not going to say a word. What else is going to happen at the trial and at the crucifixion? The king will be heavily mocked and heavily ridiculed. We've seen the crown of thorns. We've seen the robe. Look at Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22 and verse six. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Now flip over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27 and verse 38. Matthew 27 verse 38. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at them, wagging their heads saying, you who are to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also were with the scribes and elders were mocking him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And now Matthew quotes Psalm 22, eight. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So Jesus in the upper room said, I'm going to be betrayed by a friend. You will all run away. I will be in trial. We see that he was silent and that he was mocked and ridiculed. Then what did Jesus say would happen? He would be crucified. Then the Gentiles will put me to death. Look at Psalm chapter 22 and starting at verse 7. For many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Now, Bashan is the area of the Sea of Galilee. Where did Jesus do 99.9% of all his ministry? In the Sea of Galilee, around that area. The bulls of Bashan are the religious leaders who hated Christ, who followed him down to Jerusalem so that they could see him crucified. Verse 13, they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. 
A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, and they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is a thousand years before it happens. This is 550 years before crucifixion was ever invented. This was about 800 years before the Roman Empire ever became an empire and actually adopted crucifixion. David is describing a form of execution that the world has not invented yet. Has not been invented, and yet with great detail, he shows us how the Messiah is to die. Verse 14 says, he is to be poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. In the crucifixion, what the Romans would do is before laying or before actually hammering you to the cross, they would tie ropes on your extremities and they would either have horses or the Roman soldiers pull them as far as you can stretch. And the reason is because crucifixion, you die not from pain, you die from not breathing. You die actually from suffocation. You are pinned to the cross so much that you can't, you can't even get that breath in. And so people, while they're hanging on the cross, they're trying to breathe so hard that their shoulders and their hip sockets actually dislocate so that their, their torso can actually move up and down. And that's why they would flog the back. They would have all the nerve endings on your back exposed. So if you tried to move up on the cross, your back and, and your vertebrae and all those nerves would rub against that rugged wood. And so they made it in such a way that it maximized the pain for the longest amount of time. The word crucifixion is Latin. It comes from our English word excruciating. So if you've ever been in excruciating pain, I can guarantee you Jesus far exceeded you. And so he's there, and as he's trying to breathe, his shoulders and his hip sockets would actually pop out of place. And then my heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Remember the Roman soldier, they didn't want, or the Jews didn't want the bodies up during the time of Passover. So Pilate told the Roman soldiers, go take the bodies down. But they wanted to ensure that Jesus was killed. So what did the Roman soldier do? He stabbed him in the side, literally in his heart. And John gives us this incredible little bit of detail. And out came blood and water. Now, the Journal of American Medical, they said that this is actually happening because your heart is pumping so hard to get oxygen into your lungs that it actually takes on other form, other fluids, and then your heart bursts within its own chest. Jesus' heart literally broke for you. His heart was melted within him. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue cleaves to my jaw and you lay me in the dust of death. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says what? I, I thirst. Remember, he's hanging on the cross and he's so thirsty. Why is he so thirsty? He's trying to get oxygen into his lungs, right? And so he has his mouth open and he's like this. And he's trying to get everything he can in your mouth. If you've ridden motorcycles or anything like that, what happens when you keep your mouth open? It dries completely out, bone dry. And so Jesus was there on the cross and he 
declared, I thirst. And what did the Romans do? They took some hyssop, which was the priest's holy plant, and they put a, 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 a sponge of vinegar and they put it up to his mouth so that he could drink. Look at Psalm chapter 69. Psalm 69, verse 16. Psalm 69, verse 16. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. And they also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So there Jesus is crucified on the cross. And David goes on further and he says, For the dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare. You know what execution form that is. Doesn't have to be taught. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Verse 18. They divide my garments among them and for clothing they cast lots. Remember that beautiful gown, that robe that Jesus had? The Romans didn't want to tear it off because it was so beautiful. So what did they end up doing? Shooting dice. They end up casting lots or shooting dice to see who was the one that was going to get the robe of the king. Imagine how much that would be on eBay today. That thing would sell for like trillions of dollars. But they got their robe just like uh, David said a thousand years prior what would happen. So Jesus says, I will be killed in that upper room. And then he says, but don't worry. Why? Because I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. Now we'll do this quickly. <sighs> Running too long here. Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10. Another Psalm of David. And, and David in Psalm 16 is praising God for him delivering him. Psalm 16 and verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to go under decay. You will make known to me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Now, verse 10 is the one we really want to dive into. David says, God will not abandon my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to go under decay. So Sheol is the grave. It's what we would uh, think of as dying. So David is saying, you are not going to abandon my soul when I die. And then he says this, nor will you allow your Holy One. Now, the Holy One is a messianic term. David could be referring to himself, but most likely he's referring to his Messiah. And what will the Messiah not happen? What will not happen to the Messiah? That's better. 
He will not decay. What does the word decay mean, decay mean, do you think? Rot. You will not rot. Now, this is Jewish theology. This isn't medical theology. It's not even Christian theology. It's Jewish theology. Rabbis taught that when a, a Jewish believer died, their spirit would linger around the body for three days. After the three days and after the smell of rot and decay, the spirit goes off to Sheol. The spirit goes off either into Abraham's bosom, the place of comfort or the place of torment, but they go to the grave. So three days and then you're going into the smoking section or non-smoking section of eternity. That was Jewish theology. Look at what David says. The Messiah, the Holy One, will not go under decay. So the Hebraic theology is three days, it decays. So what's the statement of verse 10? Messiah will rise at least when? Before day three. Now it doesn't say day one, two, or three. It just says before he decays, which is the third day. Now, who would you consider are the two most fruitful apostles if you had to just throw it out there? Peter, I would say Peter is definitely, he's up there. And then who would you say is the second? John, okay, I would argue another one. Paul, I would say Paul is pretty legit. Guy wrote most of the New Testament. He planted most of the churches. Peter and Paul, they both take Psalm 1610 so that you know that I'm not going crazy and just put in verses everywhere. They both take this Psalm and they put it into their own sermons. In Acts 2, uh, Peter uses Psalm 1610, and he says that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And also, Paul takes Psalm 1610 and also puts his, in his sermon referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Acts chapter 13, we're almost done, I promise. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 32. And this is Paul preaching now. And he's preaching before the Jewish people. And this is what he says. Acts 13, 32. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the forefathers. We're looking at Holy Week in the Old Testament. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it was also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, and this is Paul saying, David couldn't have been speaking about himself. Because verse 36, for David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep or died and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. So Paul is saying David was referring to someone else. Verse 37, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all the things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Then you see in the Old Testament, all these different foreshadowings of the resurrection. 
In Hosea chapter uh, 3, it talks about two days you will be forsaken and the third day you will rise again. Speaking of Israel's exile and then God bringing them back. Then you have Jonah. Remember Jonah? What did Jesus say of Jonah? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the son of man shall do what? Be in the belly of the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And what was the story of Jonah? He goes in for three days and three nights. He's vomited out by the great fish. And then what does he do? He preaches the gospel. And all of Nineveh is saved. Jesus resurrects from the dead. And what do the disciples do? They go and preach the gospel. And what happens? Many, many, many people are saved. And then you have I, um, Abraham and Isaac. They go up Mount Moriah. And you remember Isaac is going to kill his only begotten son. On the same place, Mount Calvary would happen thousands of years later. Only at the base of the mountain, Abraham looks to his servants and says this, me and the lad will be back. I know God's going to have me kill my son, but we'll be back. Now the commentator in Hebrew says, that Abraham believed in the resurrection of his son. He believed that even if his son were to die, God was able to bring him back from the, from the dead again. And so in the Old Testament and through many prophecies, we have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is that good? Are we okay? All right. God bless. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you, God, that we can look at Holy Week, we can look at the entrance of the king all the way until the resurrection of the king. How the tomb was empty and the religious leaders wouldn't do it because they don't want to prove the gospel true. The Romans wouldn't do it because they don't want to lose their life. The disciples couldn't steal the body because the Roman soldiers were defending it. The tomb was empty. Nobody could have taken it. And it's because Jesus rose from the dead just as the scriptures has prophesied. So Father, you have told us your word so that we can believe it. And you have said that sin is done by all people and the wages of sin is eternal death. But you sent your son endowed with salvation so that we can be made right with you, so that we can have our sin forgiven, so that we can be one with God. Jesus died on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. He was our Passover lamb. He was our ticket into heaven. And so the Bible calls us, Galatians 2.20, to live a resurrected life. For you have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I must live by faith for the Son of God who loves me and gave his life for me. Christian, it's our job to live the resurrected life, to be like Jonah and preach the gospel, to be like the disciples and go out and make disciples. We are called to not live a life of defeat, 
not live a life of death, not live a life of sin, which results in nothing but judgment. We are called to live the very best life, a life after Christ, a life of a new beginning and a new hope. It's our job to rise to the call. Father, we thank you for the empty tomb and the full hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.